0: Thank you guys for being here. Uh, appreciate uh, you taking your Sunday out to, to worship with us this morning. Um, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter fifteen. Um, that's going to be uh, the text we're looking at uh, this morning. Um, and as we have studied the book of Romans over the past couple of months, I, I have told you that Paul has made it um, made it his point to to kind of shift the the narrative or the the direction of his letter, starting well, really starting at about. Chapter 9, but chapter 9, 10, and 11 kind of stand on their own, but then he, he makes another shift at chapter 12, and, and kind of what Paul does at the beginning of the book of Romans up through chapter 8 is he, he says, here's what God has done for you, and then once you hit Romans chapter 12, he says, here is how you live in light of what God has done. Right, the 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 directive of what God has done and the theology of that, and then the the directive of how we respond to that starts in chapter twelve. Maybe maybe a better way of putting that is, God saving you was for His glory. That is the the major theme of Romans one through eight. That 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 we are wicked sinners and that God has saved us for His glory. Right, I think that there's this kind of. Uh, tendency amongst the church for us to believe that God saved us through Christ because of something special we've done or something about how great we are. And Romans chapters 1 through 8 teach us the opposite, that God saves us even when we're unworthy for his glory and his namesake so that we might worship him. And so Romans 1 through 8, right, God saved us for his glory and his name. That you were saved because God is great, not because of something inherently great about us. And then we move to Romans 12 to this, that the church is God's chosen people. And for us as God's chosen people, we are the place in which he has chosen to display his glory that he chooses to use his church to display his glory to the entire world, that that he has decided in his sovereignty that the primary way in which he wants to engage his creation is his church, that he cares deeply about the church, and this is why the church is so important, because we get the privilege as his people, of coming together as men and women around one thing. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then making much of him because of that good news. And in doing that, there are some directives on how we might live to make much of him. There are some commands on how to do that. And how the church might bring him glory and bring honor and, and attention to his name so that the world might see Jesus for who he truly is and they might worship him. That, that's what the church is supposed to be about. I, I know, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to already go off on a tangent here, but let me, let me just listen to me here for a second. I know that there is a tendency for us to have grown up or have attended or even within this church to at times think that the church has lost Right, what it's really about. Right, uh, my church back home was about money, or my church back home was about the pastor, or my church back home was about this certain ministry they had. But in reality, right, here I am to tell you is that even in those instances where the, a church may have lost its way, Jesus still cares about what is going on there, and we are called to be agents of change within that body in order to make much of Him. And so the last couple of chapters have heavily focused on this idea of how do we, as God's people, chosen and loved, respond to that love and then make much of him, right? And so we saw in chapter 12 this call to be countercultural and love your enemy. And then moving into chapter 13, right, to to love our neighbor. And we talked about how, how Jesus is pretty clear that when he tells us to love our neighbor, he means everyone Not just those we like or get along with, but truly everyone. And then the last two weeks, right, when we were in in Romans chapter 14, we saw this call on how we as the church are called to love one another and what that looks like, right? And he had some specific instructions both for those that would be considered weak in the faith and those that would be considered strong in the faith, right? And to the weak in the faith, his charge was to, to stop judging To stop being so judgmental and and to not judge someone and condemn over matters of personal preference within the church. And instead, if even necessary, be quiet and not speak up. And then to the strong, his charge to them was to stop living selfishly. to, To be willing to surrender your freedoms for the sake of unity within the body of Christ. Because there's much a lot more at stake here than being right or wrong on a particular issue of theology or of preference within the church, but that what's at stake here is the unity of Jesus' bride. And so when we arrive at Romans 15, we have two chapters remaining. And what I want us to notice over the course of the next two Sundays is this. If God designed you, if you if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus here this morning, right? if God designed you, to live in community, which is what the church is supposed to be. If God designed you to live in community, and in that, if that community is meant to be a group of people that display the glory of God in the gospel, then there should be something distinct about us. That the church should not just look like your service organization at the university. It shouldn't look like the Rotary Club or Kiwanis or the Shriners. Who I, I mean, I think it would be cool to be a Shriner. They drive around in those little cars and parades. I don't know if you guys have ever seen them, and they wear those, those little top hats or whatever you call those things. They're pretty cool, but the church is not supposed to be the same as them. There may be some similarities with those organizations, but the church, by definition according to what God has called his people to be, should look different from everyone else. And what we're gonna see in Romans 15 is that there's two distinctive marks that differentiate the church from every other group that gathers on this planet. The first is their unity, and the second is the church's mission. That our unity as the church and the mission that we are on distinguishes us from everyone else on this planet. And We will focus on both of these things over the course of the next two weeks and how God has designed and desires his church to act and how God sees his church affecting the world around us because the church should have an effect and it should be a positive one. So look at me, let's start, I just want to look at the first three verses of Romans chapter 15 to start, and I want to start breaking some of that down, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll glean some of this from the text this morning. Look at verses one through three with me. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. All right, so verse 1 of chapter 15 starts out somewhat of a continuation of what we saw in Romans 14. It's going to be a bridge between these two separate ideas that Paul is sharing with us. And he says, right, we who are strong have an obligation— to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. So so what we see, right, is this this great demand or command of Paul as to how the church is to conduct itself. And and we can kind of sum up that verse by saying that that the church should be living in such a way that they're walking with an, an attitude of humility and service. But Instead of of being interested in what we want and what pleases us, the call of a follower of Christ within the body of Christ is to lay down those preferences, if necessary, as we pursue others. He says that we bear with the failings of the weak, and we are for them and their good. Now, we need to make a note here, because I think there's a tendency sometimes where we we say someone might be strong in their faith or they're, they're a strong believer and we almost look down on that. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He doesn't say there's anything inherently wrong about being strong in your faith and loving the Lord and being zealous for him and wanting all these things. He simply says that the strong though, at times may have to lay down their preferences in order to serve the weak for the sake of the church. So so that living unto God is Others focused and self-forgetful. Now, pause and think about that for a second because it's easy to just kind of hear that and let it flow through you and not reflect on it. But everything that Paul is saying in those three verses, I'm telling you right now, guys, if you have spent longer than 30 minutes in the USA is completely countercultural to anything you've ever been taught or heard and is also against your very nature as a human being. I've raised two kids. Human human beings are inherently selfish from the outset, and it continues that way all the way until you breathe your last breath, that that we tend to set up our lives in such a way that's not less self-focused, but more self-focused, that we tend to take jobs, start careers, take vacations, start families and relationships, have friendships and whatever they may whatever else we may get involved with in our life in ways that serve us not those around us. And and in that, right? We move further and further away from the design and the intention that God has created for the way his church should operate. That we miss out on the glory of what God is trying to do. And so, so Paul just says, look, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be upfront and honest with you from the, from the get-go. If we, are, if we proclaim that we are followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, we should look differently than the world around us. And the primary way in which we look different is that when we engage with the world around us, we are worried about them and not ourselves. We are worried about their interests and the things that are going on in their lives and not our own. We're worried about their preferences and not our own. And therefore, we will inherently look different if that is our focus. Now, it's easy to say because, well, he's saying that in light of everything that he said in Romans 14, to think that that only happens within the church that brothers and sisters within the church are serving and laying down preferences for one another for for the mutual building up of followers of Christ? And I would say yes, but if you look at verse 2, Paul adds to that, right? He says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Meaning that this call to surrender your preferences and pleasures is not just for the person who's sitting next to you here this morning, or who's in your community group, or might be in your Bible study, or is a, a friend that that loves the Lord that you've been close with for some time. It's also for the person who sits next to you in class, or works for you, or comes into your place of business, or lives next door to you, or you see walking around town, or you meet in Starbucks, or whoever it may be, it's everyone. I shared with you weeks and weeks ago that Jesus' definition of neighbor is anybody and everybody. His parable of the Good Samaritan was a teaching that your neighbor was anyone, including people you don't like, because Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They hated one another. The way that a Florida fan hates a, a Florida State fan, that kind of hate, that In this scenario, right, if UF is the guy who got beat up, the Seminole is the one that took care of him. right? That's the the type of illustration that Jesus is using to describe who your neighbor is, right? And so in order to see Christian community built properly, whether in this church or any other church, or whether it's this ministry or some other ministry in this city, in order to see that community grow centered around Jesus and his gospel, his disciples must commit to growing in grace and surrendering pleasures for the sake of both those inside the body of Christ and those outside. Right? What Paul is asking the church at Rome to do and, and subsequently us some 2,000 years later is stop worrying about yourself so much. Stop being focused on what you want and what you need all the time and start worrying about others. Now, let me, let me dig at that a little bit, right? I know inherently some of you in this room already don't like me, right? Because, because we're talking about this, right? But I do no justice to God or his word if, if, if we don't dig at this a little bit, right? When, when, when Paul is saying, right, that we surrender our pleasures or our preferences, he's talking holistically about life, Right, he's talking about your finances. right? Believe it or not, guys, I know you've been t- maybe taught differently growing up, but the goal of life is not to accrue as much money as possible and then use that money to serve your needs and your wants. That the goal is to use that money that God might give you to steward it, to glorify God by serving others. You, wanna, you want proof of what God thinks of money? Turn over with me to John chapter uh, 12. This is one one of those fascinating moments of Scripture where I love it because even the disciples don't get it, and yet there's this really godly woman who does. Right? Look at this story with me. Six days before the Passover, so we're talking six days before Jesus is going to be crucified. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the Table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. Right? Here's what, here's what Jesus is saying there. Mary who uses a year's worth of wages to anoint the feet of Jesus, right? That's a lot of money. Could you imagine, right, an entire year's worth of your, I mean, some of you college students, that wouldn't be very much, but for those of you that aren't, right, an entire year's salary, right, she's using to make Jesus, Jesus smell a little bit better. Does that seem like a great use of finances, probably, like, off the top? No, right, you'd be like, what, you know, I, I'm, like, when I'm reading that story, originally, I'm kind of like, Jesus, like, what the heck is going on? Like, why are they wasting all this money, Right? And yet, what does Jesus say? She's using this to honor me and make much of me. She's using this money to display her love for me and the radical generosity that she wants to show in serving me as her Lord. Right? Most of us struggle to give up a macchiato at Starbucks to serve someone else, much less a year's salary. But what we're talking about here is if we're going to radically display what it means to live in community centered around loving God and making much of Christ, we're talking about this level of surrender. Taking less using less of what God has given us to to meet our desires and our own pleasures instead to serve him, right? And it doesn't just mean finances either. It means the way that you serve, right? Your gifts and abilities that you have are sometimes naturally given and sometimes are given supernaturally if you're a follower of Jesus. And the call of God is that we use those gifts to serve the church and to glorify him, not ourselves. Works the same way in relationships, right? Right? Many of us will only want friendships and relationships with people that we have things in common with. Right? The number of people that I that I talk to are like, oh, you know, Lathe is kind of hard for me because you know, someone's not my age or, or there's, not a, there's not enough people in this certain age group that I'm looking for or, uh, you know, that we don't have similar interests or we don't like the same sports teams or this person uh, likes Marvel superheroes and I only like DC superheroes. You know, whatever it may be, right? We, we are centered around, right, finding people who are exactly like us. How many, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Seinfeld. Right, I, I, I think that show's hilarious. And there's this one episode where Jerry's dating somebody and it ends up being the female version of him. And he loves it. He's like, this is great, right? And they decide they even wanna get married. And then an episode later, guess what they come to find out? They hate each other, right? But most of us, right, the, the writers of that show were actually making fun of all of us. Because most of us, when we're seeking dating relationships or friendships, look for ourselves. We look for somebody who's exactly like us because we don't want to be challenged or have to change or do anything differently. We're so selfish, even in our relationships, that we look for people that are exactly like us, who like the exact same things as us and want to do the exact same things we want to do. And yet the call for those who love Jesus and want to see his gospel go forward, is that instead of looking for those who are like us and instead of refusing to engage in hard spaces, that instead we ask questions as, how can I serve this person and know them more no matter how different they are than me? No matter how much I may dislike many of the things they like no matter how little I may have in common with them. I think one of the other ways that Paul is calling us to surrender our pleasures is with our time. Time is the great resource of this generation. As a species of human beings, we have never been more efficient than we are currently. And we've never had more time for free, more free time than we do now. And yet we are the busiest and most overworked people I have seen in the last 30 years. Now I've only been here 32, so. Guys, my grandparents grew up without a microwave. When they first had a telephone, they had to ask someone else to connect them. If you wanted to order something or get something that wasn't in stock at a store, you had to wait for that store to order and then deliver it to that store, and then you still had to go back to that store and get it instead of having it brought to your door. If you wanted to get somewhere, you rode a bicycle, got a ride from somebody, or walked. We have more conveniences and more things that have freed up time for us than we've ever had. And yet over the course of time, I've seen less and less and less willingness for people to wanna give up that free time that's been freed up by their phones or by their car or by whatever else it may be to give to serving the Lord. We are more selfish than ever with our time surrendering your time to be with others and serving others is what the church is supposed to be about. Guys, I, I think even as, like as, a, as a father of young kids, right, this hits home particularly for us. And Jackie and I, you have to be intentional about this. Like young kids thrive on structure and familiarity. And like for those of you that know my kids, they go to bed at like the same time every night like clockwork. And we try to get them down for a nap the same time every day. And the reason we do that is they function better in that environment. And our lives are more joyous if they're not miserable. Right? But one of the things that Jackie and I are particularly intentional about is that our kids' schedule will not disrupt our ability to do ministry. If we have people over to our house for dinner, or if we have a community group event to attend, or something else that the church is trying to do to serve either people in this church or outside this church, if it means our kids stay up past their bedtime and are grumpy the next day, then we deal with it. If it means our kids aren't doing something they want to do, then we deal with it. Right? That we're willing to surrender that time and the way we want our... Family to primary function in order to serve Jesus and his church and reach other people. What Paul is asking of us is difficult, but we can't have true community and truly be on mission for his kingdom if we're unwilling to do so. I'm telling you right now, if not, we'll continue to put on a mask and fake church. We are called to make much of God by, by surrendering the pleasures of this world for the sake of glorifying him. And I love how Paul, you know, he, he, he knows he's asking something pretty serious of the church here in Romans 15. So what does he immediately do? Right When you get to verse three, he reminds us like, hey, I know that everything I'm saying to you sounds really difficult and frustrating, but guess what? Jesus did all of that for you. Right look at verse 3. He says for Christ did not please himself but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Right he's quoting from Psalm 69 there. And in that psalm you have a righteous man, King David, facing mockery and yet does so and surrenders to that mockery for the sake of the glory of God. Now he asks God to deliver him, but he says, God, I will continue to face this scorn and this mockery if it means that you might be made much of and you might be glorified. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, even more so, is the better David who surrendered his preferences for our sake and the Father's glory. That Jesus did not consider, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, equality with God in the throne room of heaven of something to be held onto, but instead emptied himself out as a form of a servant and took on human flesh. And then not only did he, as God's son, put on human flesh, even as the creator of all things, but then surrendered himself to death, the point of death on the cross. The most horrific possible execution that you can imagine. The most demeaning form of punishment that anyone could face at that time in human history, Jesus did so so that he might take on our shame and our mockery and our guilt. He surrendered everything. That this is the pattern of what God does. He surrenders in order to save. And Paul is saying Like your Savior and King, if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, the call for you is to surrender and display his glory. Now, Paul takes a quick break when you get to verse 4 to explain why he would even share from the Old Testament scriptures. Read verse 4 with me. He says this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I get asked from time to time as to why like, we're so concerned about the Bible here at Aletheia, why the, the pastors and the elders care so much about biblical truth and, and being loyal to the word of God and why we hold to things like biblical inerrancy and the primacy of scripture and why that's so important for any ministry in our opinion. Paul answers that question right here, right? He says, Paul's basically saying, I share the word of God, the Bible with you for some very specific reasons and purposes, right? That the Bible teaches us, right? He says there that it's written for our instruction, right? And he also says that the Bible was written in the past, but is effective for instruction today. Meaning for us today in 2018, the Bible is still relevant, That what was told to the church some 2,000 years ago is still relevant for us. We still struggle with the same things. We have the same issues. We have the same pride, the same selfishness, the same problems. It might look slightly different culturally, but we still struggle with the same thing of not wanting to live unto God. That the Bible is still important because it's relevant. And then lastly, right, and this may be the most important, that not only is the Bible there for instruction and not only is it still relevant, but it's also for our encouragement so that we might endure. That what God has given us in his word is designed by definition to remind us of who he is and where our hope lies. This is why we should not only be in the scriptures as a church, but also personally seeking to hear and be encouraged by God and his word. Guys, the most important thing you'll do any morning when you get up is to open your Bible and and just quietly read and listen. I I promise you that as someone who's been following Jesus for almost 13 years now, there's nothing more life-giving than that. There's just not. Because daily, I am surrounded by culture and people and my own sinfulness that speak and whisper lies to me about how life is. And the way I'm renewed and corrected and given hope is by opening his word. So that I might be given instruction. So that I might be encouraged. And that when I'm in a season of difficulty in trial, I know where my hope lies. And therefore I'm encouraged to endure all the more. Guys, that doesn't come from your iPhone. It doesn't come from your favorite sports team. It doesn't come from your favorite author doesn't come from your own natural ability. It comes from the word of God and what he's promised to us. And this is why Paul quotes it, and this is why we care so deeply about the word of God here and will unashamedly continue to minister that way. Now, when he gets to verse 5, he's going he's gonna, to... He's going to shift again, right? The first three verses, he's kind of given this charge of, hey, life in community is about you surrendering your preferences and pleasures for the good of everyone else. And then look at what he does when he gets to verse 5. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Look at that carefully. Notice what Paul is doing. He's praying for them. You notice that? In this letter, right, he's been giving them instructions and teaching them and doing all these things. And then then all of a sudden, right, he just, he gives them, he says, hey, remember how important the Bible is. And then he immediately breaks into prayer for them. Right, he's just given them instruction and told them to serve. And then he starts praying that they might do so. He says, "You, you, you as the church, the bride and body of Christ, need to live in harmony and unity, serving one another. And then he begins to pray that prayer for them. May God give you endurance and encouragement so that you might live in harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus, that together you might with one voice glorify God. Now, this this is where I want to pause because everything we've been reading over the course of probably the last month and a half hinges upon our understanding verses six and seven. When we gather as a church to to worship in song and worship in reading the Scripture and worship in prayer and taking communion and serving our city together and serving the needs of others and serving through our gifts and our generosity, when we do that, there is a tendency for us when we read the Word of God to read these commands and just focus on them. There's a tendency to say, okay, God calls me to to surrender my preferences and my pleasures. I'm going to do that. God calls me to read his word, I'm gonna do that. God calls me to pray, I'm gonna do that. God calls me to be in community, I'm gonna do that. God calls me to to live a a life of holiness, so I'm gonna do that. And we start making these lists of things that we're supposed to do because God said so. But notice that even in his prayer, Paul reminds the church at Rome of why it is so important to not just live in community and unity with one another, but why they do so in the first place. The goal of all of this is not just the unity. Guys, believe it or not, Jesus didn't die just so you and I would be able to hang out and enjoy one another's company, It's a byproduct, but it's not why he, he came and lived and died and rose again. The goal of unity and living unto God in community is that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then look at that last line. Why? For the glory of God. Church, we exist for one reason. To glorify him. That's it. There's a a tendency in whatever ministry you call your primary home, Whatever church you call your church home, or even our own church, is to is to see these things like we need to do these things well so people like us or like our church. If that is your focus and your motivation, you will fail. You might create a community that mimics and displays godly character and qualities. But the most important thing of all that will be missing, which is the worship and glory of God. We are after one thing as a church to see a greater worship of God. That's it. We're not after seeing more people in this room. We're not after more biblical fluency. We're not after the best worship band or the best sermons. We're after one thing a greater worship of God. The goal of good theology is not knowledge, but a greater worship of Jesus. The goal of good worship music is not to have our ears enjoy the music, but a greater worship of Jesus. The goal of gospel-centered community and unity in church is not the relationships themselves, but a greater worship of Jesus. The goal of friendship is not relational harmony, but a greater worship of Jesus. The goal of marriage is not to satisfy your loneliness or to make you complete, but is for a greater worship of Jesus. I am convinced that the church is biggest problem is not an issue of obedience or the way we practice our faith because most churches I have interacted with including ours here seek to know the bible to know God to to know one another well and to obey him most churches do that I would say it's the exception to the rule for churches that don't seek to do that not the rule maybe not maybe not perfectly but the intent is there but I'm convinced, though, though that, that though we do them those things in and of themselves seek unity, seek gospel centered community, seek, seek to honor God with preaching the word and knowing the Bible and praying and all the list of things we believe a church should be doing that we often are using them simply as a means to an end and not as a means in which to increase our love and attention and affections for Jesus. Paul makes sure to make it clear to us here that although his command to them is unity and that gospel unity in community is paramount for believers, it's not the unity we're after, but a greater worship Of Jesus. Now we could stop there and I think we'd probably be encouraged. Right? And encouraged to just take a step back and say, Lord, might you help us to surrender our pleasures and our preferences for the sake of worshiping Jesus? But he's going to actually share a little bit more here about why this is God's design and why it's been this way from the outset, right? Look at verses 8 through 12. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. Right? Paul says that he himself spent his entire life since conversion centered around laying down his life for others and serving them why so that Jesus might be glorified right look at what he says he says in verse 8 that Christ became a servant to the circumcised that's the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to what? To confirm that the promises were given to the, the patriarchs had come, had come to pass. Right, here's what Paul's saying. He said, Look, Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, he's the promised Savior and Redeemer that Israel looked forward to. And Paul if you know anything about him, spent hours and hours dialoguing and persuading with Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was willing to surrender that time and use his talents and gifts to do so so that they might know that Jesus was really the Messiah and that they would worship God and glorify him. Paul says, look, I surrender my time, my talents, and my gifts so that my fellow Israelites might worship Jesus as the Messiah because he is. And then he says this in verse 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He's saying, look, I also travel around the Roman world sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because even though Gentiles did not know the law or the prophets... They did not have the temple to worship in or have the Levitical priesthood before them. God in his mercy sent Jesus to forgive them of their sins. And in me declaring what Christ has done, they know what God has done and they surrender to him in his mercy and they worship him. That Paul's entire ministry is not centered around planning churches. It's not centered around bringing glory to himself. It's not centered around establishing church leadership or teaching proper doctrine. It's centered around worshiping God so that Jew and Gentile alike might come together in the church and worship him. He even quotes multiple passages from the Old Testament to show us the importance of gospel-centered community and unity. Right? In verse nine, right that the Gentiles would declare the glory of God among the Gentiles with, with the Jews. Right? That's from Second Samuel chapter 22 and Psalm 18. Then in verse 10 he quotes from Deuteronomy 32 saying that we would rejoice and that the Gentiles would rejoice with God's people, that they will actually be invited into God's family. Then in verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117 saying that the Gentiles will praise God with God's people. And then when you get to verse 12, right, he he uses that verse from, from the Old Testament to encourage... Both the Jews and the Gentiles saying, the root of Jesse, which is a a, a statement harping back on Isaiah chapter 11, reminding them of God's covenant with David, saying, God has promised to send through the seed and the line of David, a Messiah who will save everyone. And for you Jewish believers who have been patiently waiting for God to save... Jesus is the root of Jesse. And for those of you that don't have any idea what I'm talking about right now in the Old Testament, that the root of Jesse is from David's line, which God had promised, and he saved you. Because Jesus is the hope of the Jews and the hope of the Gentiles. And the goal of God from the outset was to bring all together, not just for unity, though, but for worship they might worship him. Church, we can spit out a lot of different reasons why we exist. Every church, even in ours, has a mission statement and has core values. We We exist to know God. We exist to be in community and encourage one another. We're we're passionate about community. We're passionate about evangelism and reaching those who do not know Jesus. We're passionate about biblical truth here or serving the poor or doing overseas missions or whatever, 100 different things, different churches kind of list as their core values and things they care about. And those are good things. So There's a reason why our church even, lists some of them that we care about and we value here. I want gospel-centered community. I want to be a part of that. I long for that as a follower of Christ. But ultimately, church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus. Not to exalt ourselves not to exalt the community we're in, not to exalt the ministry we're involved in, and not to exalt the people that we interact with, but to encourage one another mutually so that we might worship Jesus. And here's the good news. It's happening. It is all over the world. It is happening. And God promises that it will ultimately be fulfilled in the return of Christ. Turn over to Revelation chapter five with me. This is the promise of what future is going to look like. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth As though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down. And what did they do? Worshipped Jesus. I have one hope for us today, guys. If you take nothing else away from anything I've said this this morning, I have have one thing that I hope you take away. Look at verse 13 of Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you all, fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. May we be filled with joy and peace together in unity through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might abound in hope. And in that hope, that we would worship Jesus because he is worthy. That's that's what I want. Right, 20 years from now, if I'm still living, I don't want to, I mean, I'll, you know, if you've got a family, I'll be excited for you. If you've done well in life, I'll be excited for you. But you know what I want more than anything for us? I want you to have a greater love for Jesus. I want that to be your story. I want that to be our story as a church. That we love Jesus more today than we did yesterday. And that we'll, leave, we'll love Jesus more tomorrow than we do today. And that we'll worship him more tomorrow than we do today. And we'll be more excited about him tomorrow than we are today. And that we'll make much of him in song and in our reading of the scripture and in communion and in prayer. Because he is worthy. There is none like him. We gather for one reason, and that's to make much of Jesus. I'm going to pray that we might, by God's grace... See him move in our lives so that we might do so. Let's pray. Jesus, I have one thing to ask of you this morning. Help us to worship you more. That we might, through community and unity and mission, see a greater worship of you. That's why all this exists, Lord. Not to be some great church or to have it all together, but Lord, to worship you. Because there is none like you. There is none that would surrender to the point of death, even death on a cross. the way that you did for us. So God, as we sing this morning, Lord, as we take communion, Lord, help us to one, just to quietly during communion, confess sin and ask that you might move in us. That you might forgive us of our sin and then Lord, that you might drive us to be even more thankful for what you did for us. Because though our sin is great, your grace runs greater still. And may we worship you in prayer. May we worship you in song. May we worship as we meditate on scripture. May we worship as we share the gospel with others. And Lord, may we worship you in the way that we serve others. And Holy Spirit, if we ever step out of line And are doing those things, but doing it for our own glory, our own self-help. Lord, might you convict us so that we would repent of that and return to worshiping you. And might you give us the strength and the encouragement to do that with one another. God, thank you that all of this is possible because of your son and what he's done for us. We love him. And I pray that we might love you more. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.